Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So welcome back. We began with the story of creation in Genesis, and we found that sin entered the world. Sin, a condition of sin that manifests itself in outward sinful action. And what could we do about that? God introduced the plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 12. And we saw from Genesis all the way through Esther, a straight linear narrative. After Esther, recapitulation back into that linear narrative all the way through Malachi. How will God's plan work? If you turn with me to Matthew chapter one, it begins. Now Matthew was not the first gospel written. Mark was probably the first gospel written. Matthew came after that, then Luke, uh, each drawing on the previous Gospels. And John was finally written later on. Uh, John has almost nothing in common with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Sin, S-Y-N, like synonym, the same, optic with the eye, seen with the same eye. But Matthew sits there up front. Why? Because it's going to remind us of everything that came before a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional covenant with Abraham that all people on earth will be blessed through him, and the Davidic covenant, another unconditional covenant, that the one who will come will be in the line of King David. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. I think of that as the two hinges on which the door of salvation will swing. So Matthew reminds us, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was son number four, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, questionable woman, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Rahab, the harlot from Jericho, the prostitute. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, I love the story of Ruth. Only four chapters long. It is a wonderful story. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So the first set moves us from Abraham to David in a straight linear movement. Then David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who was that? Bathsheba. 
And notice, she's always Uriah's wife in God's eyes, not David's. Even here, not Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, what a character he was, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Second movement is from David to the Babylonian captivity, 586 BC. And the third set, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Elikayim, Elikayim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Three sets of 14 generations. Perfectly balanced. Now I have to say in the second set, we're moving from David through Zedekiah, the last of the kings, and we just completed a whole semester-long course on the kings of Israel and Judah. So we know these people really intimately. These are just names to most of us. But if we study through the Bible, study. Remember Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study it. And once we do, all these people come to life. They all have histories, they all have stories back in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. The kings of Israel and Judah. Some of them are missing in the genealogy to make up the three sets of 14. Well, we know who they are, but it's a deliberate literary construct that moves us in that linear fashion all the way from Abraham up to Jesus himself, the straight linear line. Three generations of 14. Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Perfectly balanced. And you know, as we study through scripture, we'll find these patterns over and over again. Sets of three, all the time. Sets of seven, all the time. The same constructs appearing over and over again, uh, beautifully crafted, beautifully crafted. Now, how did Jesus' birth come about? I want to turn us over to the gospel according to Luke. So we'll be going back and forth from one gospel to another as we weave our story. But turn over with me to Luke chapter 1 at verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Now in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. 
Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. There's another pattern. There are going to be many women all throughout scripture who are older, barren women who end up having children. Usually they're very important people in scripture, but the barren woman is a theme that runs all the way through scripture. That's Elizabeth. And notice, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there are four Herods in the New Testament, uh, four Herods. And uh, we have to make sure we know which one we're talking about as our story goes on. Herod the Great reigned from 37 BC to four BC. And that's the one we're talking about here, Herod the Great. If you travel to Israel and you visit Masada, the fortress Masada, Herod the Great built that. Herodium, uh, which is outside of Bethlehem, another fortress built by Herod the Great. Uh, many, the, the whole temple platform uh, on which today the Dome of the Rock sits, the foundation stones were all laid by Herod the Great. A, a tremendous, he was a great builder. A miserable person, but a great builder. Herod the Great. The other thing all these people called the great have in common, Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, they're all dead. <laughs> so that was the time of Herod the Great. And there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Judaism had priests. In fact, the very first priest in Judaism was Aaron, Moses' elder brother. God appoints him high priest back in Exodus. And in Leviticus and Numbers, he carries out his duties. He has four sons, Eleazar, Ithamar, and I forget the other two. But four sons, two of whom are toasted for doing things wrong, but two more go on. Every priest in Judaism, all during the time of Scripture, is a direct, in the patrilineal line of Aaron, a direct descendant of Aaron or his four sons. Even today, there are priests in Judaism. They're not active, they have no role, but a priest is called a Kohen. Priest plural is Kohanim. If you have a Jewish friend whose last name is Cohen, they're of the priestly line of Jews. Today, now you know someone named Cohen, I can tell, you're nodding your head. So uh, the priests have no function in the synagogue today, although in Orthodox synagogues, they're often called upon to do the first reading in daily synagogue services on Mondays and Thursdays, and the first reading on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, uh, often called upon only in Orthodox uh, Judaism. And sometimes an Orthodox Kohen will be called upon to do the priestly blessing. And when he does, he gives the blessing and he holds up his hands like this, both hands as he gives the blessing. That look familiar to anyone? That's the Vulcan salutation from Star Trek given by Mr. Spock, who was played by Leonard Nimoy, who is a Jew who copied it from his Orthodox rabbi. I'll bet you didn't know that. Well, so there are priests in Judaism, and Zechariah is a priest. A priest, by definition, stands between the people and God and speaks to God on behalf of the people. 
He rep he's the mediator between people and God. He offers the prayers of the people to God. And that's what Zechariah is going to do here momentarily. Now, he was in the priestly division of Abijah. When David became king, he wanted to build a temple later in his life. God would not allow him to do it. Solomon, his son, will do it. But David did everything except lay one stone upon another. David designed the temple, he financed the temple, he hired the workers, he organized the priesthood, he wrote 73 of the 150 psalms to be sung during the worship. He was really committed to that. He wasn't allowed to build it, but he did everything except pick up the stones. And uh, he organized the priesthood into 24 divisions. Zechariah is of the priestly division of Abijah. Now, when you had the tabernacle, and then later Solomon's temple, and after that the second temple, the priests functioned at the temple, offering the prayers of the people to God with the incense, offering sacrifices at the temple. You could only do it at the temple. But they lived in 48 different cities all scattered throughout Israel, and they ministered to the people as well. So if you're living in one of those 48 cities and you're living 100 miles from Jerusalem, as uh, you might be here in the gospel. Zechariah lived, oh, En-Karim is about seven or eight miles outside of Jerusalem. That's where John the Baptist is from and Zechariah and Elizabeth. But if you lived far away, up in Galilee, and you were a priest, you ministered to the people, but you would serve time at the tavern, at the temple, offering sacrifices and incense, depending. So, you would have, in a, so if you have 24 divisions and you are going to serve at the temple once each year, how long would you serve? 24 divisions, 12 months in a year, two weeks. Think of it as two week reserve duty. When you would come to Jerusalem for two weeks, you would do what you do. You know, and, and imagine in the Roman Catholic world, uh, mass is said every day at every single Roman Catholic church in the world. And that's what the priest does. That's what he's born to do. Imagine if you could only say Mass at one place, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome on the main altar. Only there. The thing you're born to do is say Mass there. But how many times are you going to do it in your life? You have to draw the lottery, right? And you win the lottery. And I'm going, I'm going in August, on August 24th. It would be the highlight of your life. So think of Zechariah. Two weeks reserve duty at the temple in Jerusalem. He's an old man. There are, well, when David organized the priesthood, there were a thousand priests in each division. And that was a thousand years earlier. So how many are there now at the time of Zechariah? A whole lot. So how many times would Zechariah be chosen during that two-week period to do the one thing he was born to do? offer the incense before God at the altar of incense in the temple. All the priests would come who were on for that two-week period, and they would draw lots for the various jobs. Some jobs at the temple were, I don't know, sweeping the floor, adjusting the sound system, doing whatever. But the one thing you were born to do was offer the prayers of the people before God Almighty in the temple how many times had he done it? Probably never. 
but he sure won the lottery. He and his wife were upright, but they were both old. And once when Zachariah's division was on duty, the two-week reserve duty, and serving, he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot to offer the incense. The temple in Jerusalem. We begin with a tabernacle in the wilderness. We introduce it in Exodus chapter 25. They built a tabernacle, a tent. Uh, and that tent stayed functional from 1446 BC, the date of the Exodus, all the way to 959 BC, when Solomon dedicates the temple in Jerusalem. He builds it and dedicates it in, uh, on 959. The tabernacle is operative. It travels around. It moves around. It was at Bethel. It was here. It was there. It moved around. But with a permanent structure in Jerusalem, that's the only place you could offer the offerings to God. Three times a year, every Jew who was able made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. At least one of them. Many people came three times if they were local. And that's where you would offer your prayers to the priest who would then offer them in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. That temple built by Solomon was destroyed on August 14, 586 BC by the Babylonians. In 516 BC, the temple was rebuilt and dedicated. And that temple, 516, stayed in place until AD 70, when it was destroyed during the Great Jewish War, 66 to 72. Since then, AD 70, there has been no temple in Judaism, none. That's why the priests have no function today. There's no temple, nowhere to offer sacrifices, nowhere to offer prayers. You can offer prayers in the synagogue, but the function of the priest couldn't occur without the temple. In many evangelical circles of Christianity, there's a great hope that the temple will be rebuilt, the third temple in Jerusalem, right on the very spot where the other two temples were. The problem with that is what? The Dome of the Rock sits there, the third holiest site in Islam. You want to start World War III? That's how to do it. But here's Zechariah. He won the lottery, and he's going to offer incense before the Lord in the temple. This temple, it stood eight stories tall. It was made of glistening white limestone. The interior was paneled in cedar wood overlaid with pure 24 karat gold. When you open the doors, they were big high doors, two doors, double doors, overlaid with pure gold, embossed with a grapevine. Israel is God's vine, right? The grapevine around the doors. It would open this big door and walk in. And you walked into the holy place. The holy place was completely cedar wood, covered with, overlaid with gold. All the walls, the ceiling, everything. To your left was a menorah, a big, solid, one-piece gold menorah that provided the light with virgin olive oil that didn't create smoke. It had to be replenished twice a day. On the right was a table of showbread, a table made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. 
on which were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, one representing each tribe of Israel, and wine, bread and wine. Directly in front of you, where my lectern is, was the altar of incense. And that's where the priest would offer the incense and the prayers of the people. Right behind the altar of incense was a curtain that went way up to the top, woven out of fine twined Egyptian linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. On the other side of that curtain was the Holy of Holies. Now, up until the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant sat there. Pure gold, acacia would overlay with pure gold, a golden lid with two angels on top facing one another. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a golden jar filled with manna, and Aaron's staff that blossomed. That Ark of the Covenant disappeared in 586 BC with the destruction of the first temple. Where'd it go? Well, we know it's in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. You saw Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> Nobody knows where it went. It could have been simply taken as loot, melted down and used for something else. It could have been hidden by Jeremiah, who was in Jerusalem during the siege. It could have been hidden somewhere in those underground temple precincts. That's a fascinating idea. Or it could have been taken to Egypt. Jeremiah goes to Egypt after the fall of Jerusalem with a remnant of the people, and he may have taken it with him. And that's the, the plot line for Raiders of the Lost Ark, that it went that direction. And it shows up, I think in Ethiopia, they said. But uh, we don't know where it went. But in Jesus' day, in Zechariah's day, there was no Ark of the Covenant. It was an empty space, symbolically the Holy of Holies. So, Zechariah, is going to offer the incense. The only time in his life probably he ever did it. He went in, that gold room, the light from the menorah. Nobody else in there, the only person who could, who could go in is a priest and only when he was supposed to be there. Twice a day to replenish the oil in the lamp, once a week to replenish the bread on the table of showbread, and twice a day to offer incense morning and evening. That was it. There's no way, one way in, one way out. He went in. He, oh, he took a deep breath. And he walked up to that altar of incense, looking around. He's in the presence of God, as close as you can get. And he closed his eyes. And he said a prayer for himself. And then he opened his eyes. And right there, at the right side of the altar of incense, was an angel. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, gripped with fear, because there was nobody in there when he walked in. And angels are not like Hallmark card cherubs. They're massive, gigantic, warrior-like figures. Huge, fearsome. If you see an, every person in Scripture, when they see an angel, what's the first thing they say? The angel? Fear not. Because every single person is going, oh, headed to the ground. They're terrified. So here's this huge creature. He opens his eyes. Oh. 
And what's the angel say? Fear not, Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah saw the angel. The angel said to him, Fear not, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What was the prayer? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be a Nazarite from birth. A Nazarite, in Numbers chapter 6, any person can take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is a vow of separation to, not from, but to God. You leave your day-to-day -day obligations, your work, your family, your, all, all the things you have to do, and you spend time with God. Usually a week, maybe two weeks at the outside. But that's all. And during the time of your Nazarite vow, think of it as a spiritual retreat where you go off somewhere and you're by yourself and you're with God and that's it. And during that time, you don't drink any wine, any fermented drink. You don't put on your makeup and do your hair and stuff. It's not about you. It's about God. You don't cut your hair. You let your hair grow. And then when the Nazarite vow is over, a couple of weeks, whatever it might be, you offer the proper sacrifices to God, which includes cutting the hair that grew during the time of your vow, because that's symbolic of the time you spent with God. And that is offered as well. So the Nazarite vow, this boy John will be a Nazarite from birth. There are only three of them in the whole Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist, each of whom has an important role in the plan of redemption. So John will be one of those people. So when we meet John, when he grows up and he's baptizing people at the Jordan River, he's never had a haircut or a beard trim. He's got hair down to his butt, big long beard, wearing camel hair garments, eating locusts. Very strange guy. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord, their God. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their uh, children and the hearts of the uh, disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God is paving the way with John the Baptist. Zechariah is stunned. He said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I, I, I'm an old man and have you had a look at my wife lately? <laughs> We're old people. How can this be? It's not that he doubts it. He's just stunned by the whole thing. It's incomprehensible. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. Gabriel. We meet Gabriel for the first time in the book of Daniel. And every time we meet Gabriel, what he has to say has to do with the coming of the Messiah. That seems to be in his job description. You know, every time God wants to communicate something about the Messiah, he says, yo, Gabriel, get over here. I got a job for you. And off goes Gabriel. He said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. Now, you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, 
which will come true at their proper time. The silence is not a punishment for disbelief. Zachariah is simply stunned by this news. Uh, how do I know this? Rather, I think it's a great blessing. Gabriel, God through Gabriel, gives Zechariah, he plunges him into silence where he can contemplate this, think about it, come to terms with the reality of what's about to happen. I think it's a great gift that he gives him. And notice in this story how many people are plunged into silence. Meanwhile, the people were waiting outside for Zechariah, wondering why he'd been in there so long. So they're, you know, up on, uh, over the hill at San Rafael, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, Dennis Michelantos is a pastor there, I know him well. And, and imagine if, as I said before, you could only say mass at the main altar at St. Peter's in Rome, and he wins the lottery, right, and he's going to go, what would Bill do? Well, put together a tour to Italy, of course, you know, and, and we'd, we'd have a car wash, we'd have t-shirts, we'd, we'd all be there, and we'd be in the audience, and we'd have our t-shirts on, we'd be cheering them on. So were Zachariah's friends, and they're all waiting out there, and why is he taking so long? Did the poor guy drop dead inside? What happened? When he came out, he couldn't speak. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs but remained unable to speak. So he walked out ashen, mouth agape. And they realized something big happened inside there. Now when his time of service was completed, the two-week reserve duty was over, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. So she is plunged into silence as well to contemplate the magnitude of all of this and the reality of it. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, the camera cuts from Jerusalem up to Nazareth. Nazareth to Jerusalem is roughly 100 miles. If you're traveling from Nazareth, how many have been to Nazareth? Mostly with me, it looks like. Uh, but you, you leave, Nazareth is up in the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is a triangle from the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan River, straight down, diagonally west over to Mount Carmel, and then across, a, a triangle. And Nazareth is on a finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley, overlooking the Jezreel Valley. To travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem, you walk down the hill, cross the Jezreel Valley to Beit Shan, a Roman town, ford the Jordan River at Beit Shan, travel south parallel to the Jordan River down to Jericho, cross back over Jericho, and then there's a 17.3 mile road, Roman built road, from Jericho up to Jerusalem, the old Roman road. 17.3 miles. I've walked it, not up, down. I'm, my mom didn't raise no fool for a son. You know? But uh, it, it's about, for men walking together, you would 
cover about 30 miles a day. Uh, that's a lot for us, but we're not walkers typically. Uh, we've walked the Camino de Santiago and we average between 15 and 20 miles a day. And that's a, a good solid day of walking, eight in the morning till about four in the afternoon with a lunch break in the middle. But for a family walking, it would be about a five day journey. Uh, for men walking, maybe three days. So it depends. But you're traveling from the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, to Jericho, 900 feet below sea level, and then up the 17.3 mile Roman road to 2,500 feet above sea level. So it's a really big climb going up to Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that later when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus make the trip when he's 12 years old. But Nazareth to Jerusalem, roughly 100 miles. So the camera cuts up to Nazareth. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Yo, Gabriel, get over here. Got a job for you. It was a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. So she's not engaged to him. This is a contractual agreement between two families. They are married, right? The actual moving from one home into the other hasn't occurred yet, but they are contractually obligated to each other. And to break that betrothal requires the intervention of attorneys and rabbis and all the rest. It's like getting a divorce. It's no easy thing. It's not like being engaged today where you can break off the engagement and that's that. There's money involved, dowries involved, all kinds of things involved. So she is betrothed to Joseph, a descendant of David. Now the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary is about oh, anywhere between maybe 13 and 15 years old. The typical age at which a girl would be married in those days. Joseph, if he followed the norm of young men getting married, would be 18 to say 20, maybe 22 at the outside. In fact, in Judaism, in the Talmud, it says that a Jew who is not a man, who is not married by 20, has been cursed by God. You know, so that was about the age that you married, 13 to 15 for girls, maybe 18 to 20 or so for boys. Joseph may have been a different case. He may have been older, and uh, we can explore that later on. But she's betrothed to David. Her name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. She's by herself at home up in Nazareth. What do angels look like? Magnificent figures, warrior-like figures. And here's this young girl, and suddenly this male figure, and they're always portrayed as masculine warrior-type figures, appears to her. What is the only thing she would think? What if it happened to you? What would you think? You come home, you're all by yourself, and you turn around the kitchen, there's some guy standing there. And he's big and fearsome looking. She was afraid. What's she thinking? What, something bad is about to happen right now. It's going to happen to me. She was greatly troubled, terrified. 
and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What's going to happen here? But the angel said to her, as angels always do, fear not, Mary, you've found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. What would she be thinking? You know, I've heard people say, well, every little girl at that time just hoped and hoped and hoped they'd be mother of the Messiah. No, they didn't. She's thinking, I'm betrothed to Joseph. And he's telling me I'm going to be pregnant by somebody or something else. And what happens if that's the case? Over in Deuteronomy, we're told that if a virgin betrothed to another person becomes pregnant, that both she and the person who got her pregnant are to be taken to the town gate and stoned to death. Every little girl knew that. You don't get pregnant before you're married. If you do, you'll be stoned to death. Not many people did. <laughs> That's a pretty big penalty. And Mary's thinking, um, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The Greek word is parthenos. It's a physiological virgin. How will this be? Not like questioning it, but like, what are the mechanics of this? You know, how's this going to work? Because I'm betrothed to Joseph, and I have no intention of doing anything with anybody else. And the angel, Gabriel answered. And this is the only time in Scripture where an angel blushes. Watch. Well, how shall I put this? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he immediately changes the subject. You know, by the way, Elizabeth, your, uh, your cousin, is about to have a child, and on he goes. The virginal conception of Christ. How does that work? I pondered it, I studied it, I thought about it, but many of you know, who have been with me for many years, uh, I was a very avid uh, scuba diver. Uh, I became a certified diver. And as with most things in my life, I became obsessed with it. And I became an instructor, an instructor trainer, an instructor certifier, a three, level three tech diver, mixed gas, extended depth, cave diver, went through the whole thing. In fact, we were even talking in the back, down here in San Diego, I opened a business, San Diego Underwater Adventures, uh, that was for six years, and we did dive expeditions all over the planet. It was really cool. But I remember in, yeah, it was around 2008 or so, every summer we did a dive trip to the Egyptian Red Sea. We'd fly to Cairo, stay overnight, fly down to Hergada, and then drive to Marsa Alam, right on the southern border of Egypt, where a boat would be waiting for us. We char I chartered the boat 
and it would hold 18 people, I believe. And we would have that boat for a week and we'd dive the Red Sea. Because we owned the boat for a week, we could go anywhere we wanted. So we went to places other people had never been to before, diving virgin territory, if you will. And I remember on an afternoon dive, about two o'clock after lunch, we dropped in the water, 80 degree water, 100 feet of visibility. It looked like liquid air. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. And I was dropping down to the bottom and like a skydiver, horizontal to the water column, driving, dropping, dropping, dropping. And I'm watching my depth and the sand is coming up. And right about 10 feet off the bottom, I went into a neutral hover and checked the depth. It was 111 feet. And I looked at the sand and I saw my shadow on the sand. I'm 111 feet under the water. And I turned and looked up and you could see the sunbeams coming through the water. The ripples on the surface. It was astounding. And at that moment, I understood the virginal conception of Jesus. When I dropped, went off the zodiac into the water, I literally punched a hole in the water column and dropped down through it. I made a hole going all the way down through and the water, of course, would come back up over. But when the light came through, it didn't disturb the water at all. That's the virginal conception. It's like the light passing through the water, not disturbing it. That was an epiphany to me. I finally got it. That's what Gabriel knows will happen. So he tells Mary that, and uh, he said, you know, Elizabeth, your, your relative is with child, and she's going to give birth, and so on. Nothing's impossible with God. And then between chapters, uh, verses 37 and 38, there's a pregnant pause. St. <laughs> Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval Cistercian monk, wrote a series of sermons on the Annunciation. And here, right between verses 37 and 38, he said, all the angels of heaven were on the battlements of heaven looking down. And at that moment, they took in a collective breath. And they held their breath waiting. And Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And all the angels of heaven went, whew because she had the absolute freedom to say yes or no. And she knew what the consequences would be in part. I don't think she ever fathomed what they would truly be as the story will roll out. But she said yes. And, and that's the, great, the greatest thing with Mary. You know, we have different traditions in the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, the Protestant churches, Presbyterian church. But in my view, Mary is the first person to say yes to Christ. She said yes. She didn't have to. And she knew there would be consequences, huge consequences. She never, I don't think ever in her worst nightmare, Imagine she'd be 
standing at the foot of a cross with her son nailed to it. But she said yes. In that sense, she is a model of faith for each and every one of us. So what's she going to do? Somebody has to tell Joseph. I wouldn't want to be the guy. But back over in Matthew, we read in chapter 1, at verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, notice her husband, the betrothal, is a legally binding contractual agreement. He was a righteous man, and he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Nazareth, at the time of Jesus, was a very small village, maybe 20 extended families, a couple hundred people, up in the Galilee, on a finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley. It was a nothing village. Remember Nathaniel? He said, what good could come from Nazareth? It, it, it has no importance whatsoever. A little village. Now, how many of you grew up in small towns? Did everybody know your business? In Nazareth, everybody would know that Mary is pregnant like tomorrow. Right? It would spread like wildfire because it would have been utterly scandalous. A girl like that should be stoned to death. And Joseph had every right to accuse her. What? Oh, one angel came to me and told me that. Right. I think Joseph is heartbroken. I'll bet the wedding was planned, the invitations went out, the rabbi was ready to celebrate the wedding at the synagogue. Everything was going to be great. And now this. And Joseph had to be devastated by it. He didn't want to have her stoned to death. He loved her. He had to have talked to the rabbi about it, the rabbi of the synagogue in Nazareth. They did have a synagogue. Later in Luke chapter 4, Jesus will preach at that synagogue. He had to have talked to the rabbi. And the rabbi said, well, there are only three options. You can go ahead and marry her. Everybody will know. When Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because of the census, we'll get there a little bit later, when they went to Bethlehem for the census, there was no room at the inn. They had nowhere to stay. But wasn't Joseph from Bethlehem? People lived in big extended families. Why didn't they stay with his family? Apparently, they were not welcome because of Mary. She was pregnant. And it's not Joseph's. They weren't welcome. So, what's Joseph going to do? The other option, have her stoned to death? 
don't want to do that. You could divorce her. Get the legal papers going, get the rabbi involved, send the envoys down to Jerusalem to the administrators, get everything moving. And that's what he decided to do. But imagine her telling him this. Oh, he wept. He was heartbroken. And Mary clearly could not stay in Nazareth. She had to leave. And she did. She packed up a little suitcase, a little blue suitcase, and she walked down off the ridge of Nazareth, down to the Jezreel Valley, over to Beit Shan. A young girl, 13, 14 years old, unwed mother, pregnant in the days when somebody like that would be stoned to death. And it's pretty dangerous out there on the road. And she walked 100 miles. And where could she go? The only person, the only person in the whole world who would understand any of this was Elizabeth. Because she was part of the plan. And she had months to ponder it, along with Zachariah. So that is where Mary went, to Elizabeth. Now we go back over to Luke, chapter 1. At verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. That's, Judea is the territory in the south, that's where Jerusalem is. She went to En Karim, it's a, a suburb of Jerusalem today, maybe I don't know, five, six, seven miles outside of town. And she entered Zachariah's home. So she got there, with a little blue suitcase in hand, knocked on the door. Elizabeth opened the door, and when she heard Mary, Mary's greeting, Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Elizabeth knew. She and Zachariah had been silent for half a year, pondering all this. Do you think God gave him a little inside info? He sure did. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, my baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said will be accomplished. Please come in. And Mary went in. They sat down, and Elizabeth said, tell me what happened. Tell me all about it. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has filled up the humble, lifted up the humble, and has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. She knew the stories about Abraham. Every child did. 
And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So for three months, Mary is with Elizabeth. Until when? The birth of John the Baptist. Right? Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Gabriel came to Mary. She stays with Mary for three months. John is born. That's when she comes back home. But what's she going to tell Joseph? Because now when she walks back into Nazareth with her little blue suitcase, she's clearly pregnant and everybody is going to know it. And what will Joseph do? He's had three months to think about it. The divorce papers are in the works. What will he say? I'll bet Mary said, I, I, I can't go back. I, I'd be so ashamed. He, he wouldn't have me. And Elizabeth convinced her, you have to do it. So Mary packed up that little blue suitcase and off she went. Another five, six day journey back to Nazareth. And I'll bet as she was climbing that ridge and the, the finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley and she could see Nazareth, her heart was beating, her, her, her heart was in her throat. She was afraid. And she approached the door of the house, of Joseph's house, and she knocked. And what happened? Oh, look, we're right up on 8 o'clock. We'll have to wait till next week to find out. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation.